Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast. I'm your host, Zara Karutz. And on this podcast, we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. We have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. I'm so thrilled to offer the collaboration with the Asian Fashion Journal and Jacqueline Pham, reporting from Vietnam, where she discusses fashion through the lens of Asian culture. Please tune in after the conversation. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe, comment, and leave a rating and review. With all the variety of guests on this podcast, we frequently discuss personal points of view meant to hopefully inspire through shared knowledge and lived experience. My guest today is someone who I greatly cherish as a dear friend and also someone that I respect for his work. Carl Ray is a Washington DC based celebrity makeup artist who's been in the beauty business for over 20 years. Carl is most known perhaps for his work as the official makeup artist for former first lady Michelle Obama. He's held that position since 2009. And while holding that title, Carl has also worked with a long notable roster of clientele, including Anna Wintour, Meryl Streep, Diane von Furstenberg, Deborah Messing, Stella McCartney, former Queens, former presidents, including Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. You get the point. The guy has worked on everybody. He's been all over the magazines, voted top, and truly loves his brides. Please join me as I have a Zoom conversation with Carl from his home located in Washington, D.C. We talk about makeup. We talk about the old days in D.C. We also talk about the journey of becoming the official makeup artist for Mrs. Obama and how he manifested that. And of course, we have to talk about Vogue and Annie Leibovitz. So now on to the conversation. Do enjoy. So what should we talk about on your episode? What are you feeling? No ideas are. You asked me to do this. I'm really not sure. <laughs> I know how much you love to talk about yourself. Prior to moving, I lived in D.C. for 20 years. We're birds of a feather. Yeah, I know. And so it's really interesting when I think about the old days in D.C. in the hair and makeup scene and the kind of celebrity scene. It was a whole thing. DC never had a Studio 54, but it had versions and variations. No, yeah, it did. It had a little vibe of that type of scene going on. There was a lot of DC elites and social lights, and they were always going out every night of the week, just about. And there was a function or an event. And then there was all the celebrities that I felt like were constantly coming through. They were, they're coming in and out of the doors of the Four Seasons and maybe the Hay Adams and hotels like that back then. Well, back then, Georgetown was the spot. Georgetown was buzzing, yes. Yeah, so you were at the Four Seasons. I started up the street at Wisconsin Avenue, Aveda. Aveda, that's right. 
which was across the street from what was that restaurant? Um, uh, oh, good. Yeah, the Italian one. Cafe Milano. Yes, Cafe Milano. Now that's a scene. Is it still a scene? You know, it's still very sceny, yeah. I know this scene back then, though. It was but not like, like that. Those were the glory days. Like, I think Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, they had a house in, in Georgetown. For a minute, they did. You know, it was at one point. Wow, you were all that, Zara. Because I. I about that. Yeah. You remember those? Those were the. Yeah, hits. that's. Yeah, totally. Because I worked with this girl. I forget her name. Her husband, boyfriend, partner managed Milano. So whenever there was a celebrity in, they'd call the salon. And it got to the point where I was like, do I want to see Michael Jordan again? Nah, I'm not going. We got kind of picky uh, about it. <laughs> <laughs> in one night, I saw Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Catherine Zeta-Jones, her husband, Michael Douglas. So usually something like that would be an event like at the Kennedy Center Awards or something big where it was a big draw of celebrities. Like, remember Correspondence Dinners? That's when they everybody came in town and that was a total scene. I've worked with a lot of the folks that came in for things like that. I was at the Four Seasons for 15 years as a resident makeup artist. 15 years is a long time. Yeah. We're talking celebrities. I know who you did that's still my favorite. Every time we talk about this, I had to talk about her. You know who it is. Anna Nicole Smith. Yes, I love <laughs> her. Her whole story was a rags to riches situation. You know that happened. Yeah. Tragedy. Well, it ended in tragedy. It did. I love this story because when you did her, she was going to the Supreme Court. Anna Nicole Smith getting ready to go in front of the Supreme Court justices. It was a very serious moment. So that iconic juxtaposition of that beauty look didn't fit with her normal, luscious va-va-boom happening. No. When I met her, I thought it was her manager was, what was that radio personality back then? Still around now. With the curly hair? Yes. Um, the radio guy, what's his name? Howard Stern. Howard Stern. And But that was also Anna Nicole's manager. So you're, they said, you're doing Howard Stern. So I assumed <laughs> I was him or something. <laughs> Man, then makeup, he's going to be on TV. I wasn't really quite sure. So I went up to the room and it was Howard Stern, Anna Nicole Smith's manager. And he invited me in to do her makeup. So I did her makeup. She woke up, she was sleeping, came in, did her makeup. She was going to Supreme Court. I'm not going to get into all the logistics. I mean, everything that went on behind the scenes. When you were doing her makeup, was she already dressed? No, she was in a robe. What was Howard wearing? A robe? No, <laughs> a suit. Oh, he was ready. He okay. met me down there. They brought me up to him. I can't remember the scenario. But anyway... Did her makeup, met her son. It's tragic. I mean, he died like right after that. Yeah. Um, it's just the whole, the whole story yeah. so tragic. But anyway, she went to Supreme Court. She won her case. Very beautiful. One of the most beautiful faces I think I've ever worked with. She looked like a cherub. I think that's still an iconic look. Very iconic in the sense that 
it was a picture they used for a lot of shows or the news or just all that craziness that was going on. I don't think she's my iconic work. To you, she may be, but to me, she's not. No, she's not your shining star. Michelle Obama, uh, she would have to be number one iconic. There's so much work. How do you describe her most iconic of all her iconic moments? There's so many. There are so many. I mean, there was eight years in office. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel like you're famous? No, I don't feel like I'm famous at all. I feel like the person that I do makeup for is very famous and iconic. Totally. So that's how I feel. I like what I do. I like who I work with. I do more than just work with Mrs. Obama. I do a lot of bridal work, event work, teaching, tutorials, all types of things. I feel like fashion always gets the main stage. Let's look at Lady Gaga, for example. And the inauguration, we know which dress she was wearing because it was Scaparelli. Everybody knew about it. They talked about <laughs> it. I mean, it was a big deal. But I don't know who did her makeup and I don't know who did her hair. And that could be true. And it probably is true for you because you're very fashionable and into the fashion scene. Yeah. Um, I'm a makeup artist and I don't even know who did her makeup. I would presume it's a lady named Sarah something. And I follow her on Instagram. I'm terrible with names. Yeah, me too. But I do follow her and I would presume it would be her. Yeah. Isn't that interesting though? Like how. Mm -hmm. Often throughout history, the makeup artists and the hairdressers, stylists, what have you, that whole sort of crew gets left out of the narrative of the actual, let's just say, look of the woman or style of the woman. I find that interesting. You're looking it up, aren't you? I am. Oh, that's good. You're a researcher. You love your research. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sarah Tano Stewart. I follow her on Instagram, so I, I knew her name. Interesting. Which I'm surprised. Okay, so you don't feel famous, but you have been a part of all these, not just famous, but historical moments in history. I have. I feel very fortunate. And yeah, no, it's been, a, it's been really a wonderful ride. Yeah, people want to know, how does this happen? How do I become a personal artist to a celebrity or a famous, influential, notable person? You've done it, so how can others do it? So everything yeah. happened time. I moved on to the Four Seasons. FX turned into Blue Mercury, and there was a lot of change going on. I rode a scooter everywhere around for like seven years back then, a Vespa, you know, hopping on the Vespa, going to, there was a freestanding Vera Wing then, going in, meeting the manager, asking to work with her, just building my name and my reputation with yeah. doors around me at a time when there wasn't any social media there wasn't anything like that. Slowly build my reputation and my client list and just work in general, my ethic. Yeah, so you put yourself out there. I did. I know the story, but I never heard you say it that way. Did you ever doubt yourself or feel like you weren't good? Oh enough? my goodness, yeah, all the time. How do you get past it's that? The drive, you keep driving yourself. The work ethic? Just 
going working back. and putting yourself out there. And it's so funny you say this because you're such a shy person. That's what's so funny to me. You're not the type of person that likes to be the center of attention. So to go put yourself out there, I don't think in your nature in some way. No, not at all. Not at all. That was a very hard part. And it still is a very hard part for me. But once I start working with a client, I get a lot more comfortable. And that's where I really like to build my relationship is working one-on-one with someone. I think you took the time to really learn your craft. I did because there was a makeup counter at FX. And that's when I became the resident makeup artist. It was like a high-end boutique and there was a makeup area, which I could not get away from. But whatever line it was, it was NARS was one of them. So every other month they would send someone in to train and to teach you about the products. So I would learn from their people and then learn from doing folks that came in and doing all the girls that worked there. They'd always ask me to do their makeup every day, whoever came in. How long had you been doing makeup when you got the email to audition to be Mrs. You know, Obama's? Oh my goodness. I guess I've been a makeup artist for at least, I, you know, I've been, I did my mother's makeup when I was 14. So I've been doing makeup for a very long time, but as a professional makeup artist, I had probably been maybe nine, 10 years, something like that. Okay, like a decade in. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time you got the email to audition, you were working at the Four Seasons. That already gave you the cachet. And the experience of working with all types of people, personalities. I mean, I've worked with all types of folks, royalty, actors, musicians, models, authors. Yeah. Yeah. you name it. I like it when you brought up Ann Page, your mom. So you consider your career started with her. My love for makeup and seeing what makeup could do for someone, including myself. It made my mother look and feel good and bring joy to her. And it made me feel good and it brought joy to me. So it brought the love and the passion of what makeup and the power of makeup can do for everyone. My mother would be doing her makeup and I would be talking to her while she was doing her makeup in the boudoir, boudoir. wherever she was. I just thought I could do a better job, honestly. And it would give me a time to really talk to her. I would do her makeup and she yeah. looked good. She felt good. Whatever it did, she asked me to do it the next day, the next day, the next day. So I did her makeup for a while. Then I forgot about it for a while. I let that go. I moved on and did different other things in my life. And I came back to makeup. What did you do? I lived in Virginia Beach back then. Yeah. I worked in a surf shop for a very long time, believe it or not. Really? Um, Yeah. I worked at a surf shop probably for around six years. Wow. Seven years. Yeah, I was a little beach bum. Were you an avid surfer? I was back then, yes. My father was in the Navy, so I always grew up near a beach or the water. So my whole life, I lived near the water. I grew up in Naples, Italy, Morocco, and Puerto Rico, and then moved to America. And then my parents got divorced at age 14, and I was in Virginia Beach. You have a range of, I'd say, artistic expression. But I'd say on the whole, it's always very... It's clean. 
I was going to say soft, but clean is good. It It's soft. To me, it's soft. It's a beautiful, softer approach, even when it's dramatic. What do you mean soft? Well, even when it's dramatic and bold and extra glam, to me, it's still soft where it just is blended. It It's cohesive. It just all flows. Clean. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that I, I think that you are correct, but no, I just call that clean makeup. It's about enhancing and bringing your true beauty. I do like glam, it's soft glam. I don't like over the top glam, 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 which has got a time and a place and beautiful. And I, it's, you know, I admire it. Very pretty. I've tried all different things and I do all types of makeup. I just go for pretty. I like pretty. Yeah. What's pretty to you? Feeling your best. That's pretty to me. How have you innovated yourself? The products have changed over the years. There's a lot more makeup products out there. So there's a lot more to experiment with which helps you expand your makeup artistry. Watching and the YouTubes and the social media and taking classes and teaching and just doing makeup in general, you grow and get stronger and uh, advance in your style and in your skill and your craft. Do you feel like that advancement has led you to taking bigger risks creatively? Hopefully it does, because you don't want to get too comfortable in your own work. I don't. I want to keep it fresh and moving and learning and expand and grow. Yeah. So that's what you want to do, I think, as an artist. What would be an example of that over the past couple of years where you're like, I want to kind of experiment with this technique or try something else? Like, You know, I'll be one day I may be doing a cat eye and then there's a kid and eye and then there's a reverse cat eye this some of that is editorial but sometimes i'll do a brown liner or put some copper on the brown you just experiment sometimes i'll do a nude eyeliner or a black eyeliner aubergine in the waterline or nude in the waterline change my um eyelashes a lot the styles i was stuck on one for a while and i'll move on to a different brand a different look um just different products out there and different qualities and different formulas and different companies and just move along with the times. I do have my tried and true. I switch up my mascaras a lot, go from drugstore to high end to anything in between. So I'm just moving around. I do have some basics I use all the time and I'm afraid that they'll never make it again. So I do have my key products and core products like that as well. What are those? um, I have some foundations I like a lot that I like to work with. I'm open, but they work well. And um, if they're not broke, why fix it? And I'm happy. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'll try others, but um, not for those key core jobs until I know they work. I've used the same foundation for 25 years. Aveda dual foundation number two, sometimes number three. You are kidding. Never tried anything else. Oh, I've, I've dibble dabbled. I've dibble dabbled. Like I like a moisturizer that has a tint. I'll try yeah, it. I do too. I'll try a liquid foundation. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I just love the ease, the naturalness, the coverage. It's like, it's, I love it. I you like, love Aveda. Well, I, I do love Aveda, but yeah, I know what you mean. 
What was your approach all these years with your clients when they sit in your chair? To make them feel comfortable. How do you do that? The bottom line is I want them to feel pretty. Who doesn't want to feel pretty? That's my job. That's true. That's true. And I love it. Yeah. So it's a zone. I go into like a zone. When I work with a client, you kind of go into a zone. And I love that experience. Yeah. That's probably the artistic zone of creation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Do you consider yourself a master? I do, but do you consider yourself a master? No, I feel like I'm learning every day and I'm very happy and lucky to do what I love. No, I don't feel like I'm a master. Do you think you'll ever feel like you are? No, never. Really? Mm-hmm. That's fine. Who wants to feel like a master? <laughs> what do you feel like? I feel I'm happy that I'm able to do something that I love. I mean, they say, you know, find something you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Believe me, there are days when I feel like I am working my butt off, but I'm, I'm still happy at the end of the day that I'm able to create and use creativity. Yeah. That's true. And what do you think your legacy is? My legacy? Never thought about it, Zara. That's what I'm here for. Don't know. I'm not done yet. No, you're not done yet. You already have a legacy because you have eight years of a presidential administration, which is a le- that That's already in the books. That's done. Yeah. I was able to work and travel and see the world. Yeah. Well, to me, you're, you're very prolific. You're my friend. But if I'm objectively speaking, your work, I mean, you are prolific, but the, your work is been around the world. It will forever be in the, in the world. And it has changed the world in a lot of ways because you were and are the official makeup artist for the first African-American first lady that the country's ever seen. That's historic in and of itself. So within the eight years of the legacy of the White House administration, Mrs. Obama was a highly fashionable woman. She gave an Oscar away. Remember at the Grammy, she gave an award away. Just all types of different things. The Kids' Choice Award. I'll never forget that one. Just a lot, a lot of cool things. A lot of shows, a lot of appearances. That's in the street. (laughs) Singing in the car with that guy. That was a trip. A lot of covers of magazines, a lot of inside of magazines. I have some favorite covers. One of them was the the Times Magazine. I love that. It's the... I love, love, love that. New York Times style magazine. It's beautiful. Very strong. That's one of my favorites too. So People forget about that shot. People don't think of that shot. Ultimate, one of my top favorites. I have several. This is one of them. Yeah, that is what that's was, a goodie. What was the inspiration for this? Just glowy, beautiful. It's almost natural, but dramatic at the same time. Yeah, I agree. To me, this is one of her most beautiful shots. I mean, really, it's almost <laughs> like her college portrait or something. I don't know what it's giving you. It's giving me so but many. But I love it. So when you approach a cover... How is that process? I mean, of course, it's a team collaboration and there's discussions. But when it comes Mm -hmm. to your portion, when you're going in and it's time to actually 
day of How what she's her? wearing what's her hair gonna be like what's the background what's the feel what's the story about and then just go with my gut does that ever change though from your plan to the day of your gut it can yeah i okay. always have to be open for anything and i just go get just like i said i go with my gut and i go with the vibe and the feel and whatever's being channeled that's what i go with that's so that's like intuition yeah I think so. It's just the part of being creative. Did you have to develop that technique? Yeah, I think you do. I think it's there, but you uh, you do develop it. Because I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, for you, that may be powerful. For me, it's fun. Do you feel like that's freedom? It is a form of freedom. You're expressing yourself, but you're expressing the other person too. It's a fine line. Uh, especially in that type of situation okay so what about the vogue covers i have a favorite should i show you my favorite yes i hope it's my favorite yes she's on the white house garden in her white dress beautiful gorgeous gorgeous annie Leibovitz shot that yeah you were shooting with the first lady you have annie Leibovitz. you have tawny goodman Yes. You have these icon people. Yeah, that was an iconic moment for sure. Really, really amazing to be a part of. And the shots that she got are like ridiculously, incredibly good. So you have no tales of your Vogue experiences. Um, Exhilarating. <laughs> Just exhilarating. No, very exhilarating. All the buzz and the music choices and the electricity in the air. It's just very undescribable. What a moment. You've had covers before, so many, so it's not new, but getting your first Vogue cover, what did that feel like? Um, wow. Never even put that out there. And just very cool, you know, got to be on the cover of Vogue and work with Annie Leibovitz. And I was at the White House and it was with Michelle Obama. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, Carl, let's talk about the book, Becoming, and the world tour. How was that? Another chapter of working with Mrs. Obama. It was a big moment for me to see her message received by so many people from around the world in different countries, cities, and just seeing the touch she has and the the message that she has and that people can relate to and were um, very happy to hear. And then the Netflix behind the scenes documentary. So how was that? That was different to have a film crew following you around behind the scenes. Were you nervous? Mm, At first it was a little uncomfortable, but then it became very, very regular. And you didn't really think about it any longer after you're around it a while. It becomes um, secondary, which it was always secondary, but. It was always there. You just seem so natural on film when you're making jokes. Well, that's when it started to become secondary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's just really kind of cool to see how documentaries are made and the, the pieces to it. And also to be able to relive the moments of Mrs. Obama going around the country telling the story of her book and of becoming. 
Yeah, I laughed. I cried. I was inspired. It was such a journey. Yeah. It was fantastic. Absolutely. Every night felt like that. Everywhere we went, it was just a very special, fun, eye-opening, educational, true, authentic time. It was just really cool. Yeah. When you look back now, because you've been with Mrs. Obama over a decade, that's a long time. And then two presidential administrations later, traveling the world. Inauguration dinners and dances and balls and dignitaries and popes and queens and been to Buckingham Palace, been to China, been to India, been to South America, Cambodia, been a lot, a lot of places, seen a lot of things. And it's been amazing. Now that you have that experience, what would you tell your pre-Obama Carl? Follow your dreams. Don't give up. Have that drive. Hills and valleys. Just follow your gut. Do what you love. Welcome to another episode of the Asian Fashion Journal. Real insights into what's happening in Asian fashion and culture. I'm Jacqueline Pham, and today we're looking at luxury brands going on live streams in China. Recently, I started getting Instagram notifications from the official account of Dior, Gucci, Louis Vuitton going on live. Which is something I would expect to see an influencer. You know, Doja Cat and Cardi B's lives, really entertaining, love them. I actually clicked to view the lives several times out of curiosity or by mistake because I have clumsy fingers. And usually these were live fashion shows or brand talks. And I thought to myself, yeah, they do this because they want to migrate the IRL show to virtual reality during COVID, nothing special. But it turned out that live streaming is intended to serve a much bigger purpose than just broadcasting fashion shows. Luxury brands in particular attempt to use it to attract more sales from Chinese customers who are avid live stream watchers and shoppers. Some key players that are Chinese favorites like Louis Vuitton, Dior and Ferragamo have already aired the debut live stream in Chinese streaming platform. I was surprised at this enthusiasm. If I were born and raised in the Western world, which would make my first touch point with fashion live streaming, the 2020 digital fashion shows on Instagram, then maybe I would think this marketing strategy is just an extension of that and therefore hold a neutral attitude towards it. But I've been living in Vietnam my entire life and I've grown to associate fashion live streams with negative connotations. And mind you, Vietnam and China share quite a lot of similarities in terms of culture. Now before going into the negative, there are good reasons for this live stream boom among fashion brands when approaching China. First, it's cheap. To host a live stream, you only need an account on Facebook, Instagram, or Taobao, which is free, and one host or sometimes more hosts, which in-house employees are perfectly suitable. You no longer have to pay for an influencer's post to promote your product. Plus, the company gets ultimate control in terms of promoting content because they're the content creator themselves, technically speaking. Second, it fits the e-commerce fashion landscape in China and in Asia. Chinese consumers are big spenders on live streams. It's more engaging, it accommodates real conversations. 
Not to mention that when it comes to notifications, live gets an edge over any type of social media posts. Followers get notified whenever an account that they follow go on live and the live is always at the top so it captures the customer's attention before they have the chance to wander off to another account. And all these don't just exist in theory. Estee Lauder recently reported that live streaming boosted 60% of its digital sales. But here's where it could go wrong. Live streaming in Asian e-commerce is meant for lower tier products. It's similar to the shopping network if it were done with a lower budget and a fast pace of a gamer's live stream. So if I were to open a shop online on an e-commerce platform, I would know that I had to go live to attract more sales because I want to prove to my potential customers that the things I sell are legit, are usable and are useful and are not just a scam. Asian consumers don't trust Asian sellers, be it a small business or a large company. And the reason for this is the history of people getting scammed and an insecurity of consumers rise here, but I could go on forever. But they place big trust in Western brands. That's why there's Daigo culture in Asia where you can run a profitable business with just a credit card that allows you to buy from the West and sell in your home country. Another reason why live streaming suits lower tier goods is because it's so much easier to spend on a cheap item on a spur of the moment out of a sense of forced urgency and scarcity but you stop being critical as you see other people in the chat also want the item. It's like buying a magic bullet blender off QVC. So it makes sense when fast fashion brands do this. That's basically the nature of these see now buy now that thrives off people randomly spending on clothes that they think are trendy. And if you think about it, it's usually for products that have a short lifespan. Therefore, luxury brands going on live stream is just awkward because customers come to these brands for the entirely different reason that they come for a live stream. When someone's already set aside the money to buy a luxury item, they more than likely know what the brand equity is. What they want to get is not a scam-proof live performance, but personalized luxury experience and some authentication for the investment. Livestreaming is not going to offer any of these and even going to hurt the brand's reputation. Even when brands try to dodge the sale, pushy style of Asian live streaming and organize talks about brand's heritage and whatnot, the Louis Vuitton and Dior lives were total flop and people went in and criticized how they look cheap and the conversation shallow. Back to Estee Lauder's case, they succeeded because they sell cosmetics something that's on the cheaper end and there are only a few products to buy or in many cases, repurchase. People join alive to get the discount code for their moisturizer, not to get a Gucci bag. Now I know that China is a cash count for luxury brands and they're going out of their way to gain traction in this market. But live streaming may not be applicable to luxury and customers here are maturing fast enough to see through and criticize bad attempts to get their money. Thinking long term is a better way to go. Thanks for listening to the Asian Fashion Journal. Before we go, let me know what you think about luxury live stream in China by leaving a review so I can provide you with deeper, better insights into Asian fashion and culture next time.
Thank you for listening to the Unbiased Label Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, then please connect with us on social media, tell a friend, and leave a review. Please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. Until next time, stay well.